There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. We hear from the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, as Russia faces a deluge of international sanctions. Will they make a difference? And how could they impact us here in Ireland? While in the US, President Biden announces that he will enact the first tranche of sanctions, but says there's still time to avert the worst-case scenario. Whatever Russia does next, we're ready to respond with unity, clarity and conviction. Cabinet agrees to end almost all restrictions next Monday, marking a significant step in the country's exit from the COVID-19 pandemic. And later, concerns about cocaine use in the GAA. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Putin's decision to order troops into Ukraine after recognising two Moscow-backed separatist regions. Uh, first tonight, following this decision uh, by Russian President Vladimir Putin to order those troops into Ukraine, uh, the West is now moving to impose sanctions that promise to hurt Russia. For more details on the package of new measures agreed by EU members, I spoke earlier to Suzanne Lynch, journalist for Politico Europe. Yeah, big decision by the EU today. It's not easy to get 27 countries to agree on something as sensitive as a sanctions package, uh, but they did. Now, ambassadors will be meeting here in Brussels tomorrow to finally sign on off on the actual text, but basically they've got agreement for it. Um, these are sanctions uh, that target uh, members of the Russian parliament, 351 uh, members of the Duma, uh, and also 27 individuals and entities. Uh, but like what we're seeing in the US and the UK, this is kind of like a first tranche of sanctions, just in retaliation for Putin's order for troops to go across the border into that Donbass region. The EU is also working on a broader uh, package of sanctions against Russia. That's a kind of closely guarded secret. The Commission is putting that together. But um, there's a feeling here that the EU is kind of on standby to start triggering, triggering those sanctions if needed in the next few days, if uh, this situation is to escalate. And for example, Putin was to move further uh, into Ukraine. And Suzanne, what is the mood in Europe? We had the Taoiseach in Berlin today saying Russia had crossed a line with its actions, but really a sign too of failed diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of question marks or debate, at least, over the role, for example, of President Emmanuel Macron, the French president. Um, you know, he met with uh, Putin. He's been speaking to him on the phone. He's been really trying to push this diplomacy. And there is a question mark over that now. You know, is the, was this effectively a, a policy of appeasement that gave Putin more time to amass more troops? You know, we don't know how this is going to play out. That's the issue. Um, but we've had Macron, we've had Schultz 
talking uh, to Putin. They say they are in constant contact with the the Americans on this and uh, other allies like the UK. And um, but there is a real sense. I think it's what's boiling down to now is you know is uh, is Putin going to stop at this at uh, this incursion into these two enclave regions, or is he going to go further and take the entire Donbass region in the east, or indeed is this part of a full on invasion? And this evening in his speech in the White House, Joe Biden again said. Um, that he believed that it, that, you know, the stage is set for 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 a major uh, incursion by Russia. So still very uncertain, uh, very tense here, and I expect a lot of phone calls and diplomacy to continue uh, late into the night here. Okay, Suzanne Lynch of Politico Europe, thank you for joining us with the very latest there from Brussels. In studio now to discuss is Donico Bacon, Professor of Politics in DCU, Neil Richmond, Finnegale TD, and Paul Murphy, TD for People Before Profit. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Donica, on all of this, and I think for a lot of people, you know, um, we're hearing Luhansk and Donetsk, the Donbass region, all about this thrown into the international spotlight. But to give us a little bit of background, that's where this latest escalation has centred, of course, with um, President Putin recognising the independence of those regions. What, what's the significance of that? Well, it's very significant because Vladimir Putin's plan was to use these as levers, uh, as pressure points on the Ukrainian government to make sure that they could never join the EU or NATO. And, and by recognising Luhansk and Donetsk, he's kind of, it seems, given up on that for the moment. It's, it's, it's now... Uh, giving him carte blanche in his own book to uh, commit military resources formally, because of course there were Russian troops there before and there was Russian assistance to these regions before, but now they can formally move in, set up their military bases. And what's very worrying is that uh, he has now said today, Vladimir Putin, that when he says he recognises Donetsk and Luhansk, he recognises the entire regions of Donetsk and Luhansk only one third of which are under the control of these so-called separatist authorities. So it seems that if the separatist authorities try to expand to, you know, make, a, you know, make their claim uh, on the other parts of Donetsk and Luhansk no longer under their control, then uh, the Russians will back them. And, and that would lead to a full-scale conflagration. I think that's the big fear right now. Do you think that'll be the next escalation? Um, because the, the Russian so-called peacekeeping troops are in there now and it's defining where the borders are in these new independent states, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, but I think one of the reasons why the sanctions that were announced today were somewhat underwhelming is because there's somehow an expectation that that is the plan, that it's not going to just consolidate the area that's under the control of the separate authorities. It is, is going to expand and bring it into confrontation with the Ukrainian government, and they're kind of holding back on, on throwing the kitchen sink in terms of sanctions until that happens. Unfortunately, that seems to be the reality now that, you know, we were told, remember, we were being asking ourselves for months now, what is Vladimir Putin thinking? What's his plan? Now his plan has more or less revealed itself. It, it, it actually, NATO was, it was a ruse in a way. It was going to be always about Donetsk and Luhansk, it seems. All right, OK, we can cross live now to Ivy House where the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, is standing by. Minister, you're welcome along to the programme tonight. And um, we heard Taoiseach Michal hey, Martin um, in Berlin earlier today talking about Russia, as I say, crossing the line. Joe Biden taking those sentiments a step further tonight, saying this is the beginning of a Russian invasion. Do you think it is? Well, I think it's hard to, to deny the facts. I mean, what, what Russia has done is essentially uh, recognise part of Ukraine as independent states. Um, and he's moving tanks 
uh, into that territory. So, you know, he is effectively moving uh, Russian military hardware into uh, parts of what the world recognizes as Ukraine. Um, so, yes, that is a start of an invasion of sorts. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the EU, the UK, the US have been somewhat cautious in terms of how they've responded to that. Yes, we're introducing sanctions and they're targeted sanctions. Uh, but as you've just heard from your previous speaker, uh, it's not the full package yet. And that is uh, because um, we haven't given up on diplomacy uh, and we shouldn't either, because the alternative is, uh, is war, is the death of thousands and thousands of people uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, and of course, uh, extreme sanction measures working both ways, one in retaliation to the other, and everybody loses in that scenario. So we have to try to avert that. Uh, and okay. that is why the sanctions package that, that you know, has been announced this evening uh, is, uh, is real and it's targeted, um, uh, but it is certainly not as far as the, the EU, the US and the UK and others indeed are willing to go. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see what happens now. Uh, but certainly the, the language that we heard today coming from Russia in the Duma, uh, which is their parliament, uh, wouldn't inspire any confidence mm. or but positivity. What I want to uh, ask, at the Minister... moment, there's a lot of beating of war drums. Uh, and I think we have to find a way of trying to diffuse uh, that buildup of tension. But it's hard to do that, mm. uh, given the really aggressive actions of, of Russia and its president. On these sanctions, so that there are incremental steps here. But the question is, by announcing these, is, is there any point to them? Like, will they act as a disincentive at all? I think they will. I mean, you know, the um, individuals have been sanctioned. I mean, the entire membership effectively of the Duma have been sanctioned uh, in terms of asset freezes, uh, travel bans. Uh, and of course, a number of Russian banks, including the Russian Central Bank, uh, will not be able to raise money on, on uh, European markets now or, or EU markets. So these are real sanctions. Uh, uh, don't make any mistake there. Uh, but I think the EU is willing to go a lot further uh, in terms of targeting other economic sensitive areas okay. uh, if they but, need to. But, but of course, the, you know, the main yeah. focus here has got to be to prevent war as opposed to plan for how we respond to a war when it takes place. And that means intelligent and firm diplomacy, which I hope we will see in the next day or so. So what would trigger the next step in sanctions if there's a whole tranche of sanctions ready to go here? Is everything now guided by how Russia moves, essentially Vladimir Putin holding the cards? Well, he does hold, hold a lot of the cards. I mean, he's sending so-called peacekeepers into Duhansk and, uh, sorry, uh, Luhansk and, and Donetsk. Uh, but, you know, peacekeepers don't arrive in tanks and attack helicopters. Um, so, you know, that in itself uh, is not credible. Uh, but as your previous speaker also said, uh, in these regions, uh, the separatists only control about a third of those areas, uh, which essentially is Russia supported uh, separatists. Uh, and so uh, really, I think the next point of tension is, is whether uh, the Russian military is going to look to push to take control of the remainder of those two uh, regions, uh, Luhansk, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. And if they do that, it means uh, significant conflict uh, with the Ukrainian armed forces. And I think that is the next point of concern and tension. And should that 
full-scale military confrontation happen, then of course I think uh, the EU will respond with a much tougher um, package of sanctions and certainly the US and UK and others will as well. But we have to try to ensure that that doesn't happen uh, through uh, diplomatic intervention. And on uh, those but, diplomatic, you know, whether that's going to work, on those diplomatic interventions, I think more and more Minister. people are, are, are getting pessimistic at this stage. Yeah, um, that pessimism Sorry, that's there when we see that all diplomatic so diplomatic effort so far has failed. What makes you think now that diplomacy will will work here? Well, it may not. I mean, that's, that's the, the blunt reality here. Diplomacy has failed so far. Uh, and uh, Russia has essentially, you know, concocted arguments around the expansion of NATO and, and so on uh, as, a, uh, as a threat to Russia that they need to act to reverse. Uh, they've essentially created tension uh, within e eastern Ukraine, accusing Ukrainians of... Uh, of attacking Russian citizens in eastern Ukraine and so on as a pretext essentially for military action to protect Russian interests. Uh, and although there has of course been a war in eastern Ukraine, I mean nearly 14,000 people have been killed in that war over the last number of years. Uh, what's happening now is a significant ratcheting up of that tension. And of course we've seen this extraordinary Russian military buildup uh, in the Black Sea, south of Ukraine, uh, in Belarus, north of Ukraine, uh, where we've seen uh, about 170,000 Russian troops uh, with an enormous amount of hardware. Uh, they're even moving blood now and blood supplies to the border as well. So these are not good signals. Uh, and so while we should not give up on, uh, uh, on diplomacy, we shouldn't be naive either uh, at the real intentions here of Russia. All right, there we leave it. Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Paul Murphy, we heard from the minister uh, there and he was speaking about the idea, the diplomatic efforts, and we had heard that the issue that Russia had was around NATO influence and NATO expansion um, and that this was all concocted, he says, because essentially this idea was already there about, you know, uh, exerting, you know, uh, announcing independence in this Donbass region uh, and now these peacekeeping troops from Russia making their way in. Isn't that the case that Vladimir Putin had the hand here, he always had the intention and that the NATO argument was just a side issue? Well, well what I think is happening here is a clash between two major imperialist powers. Russia, on the one hand, headed by, you know, horrific, brutal dictator in effect of Putin. Um, but on the other side, um, the question of the US-led military alliance, which is NATO. And always in these situations where you're heading towards war, um, you get all sorts of hypocritical phrases used to excuse and to cover up the real motivations. Okay. Right? So, if, so if we were in Russia right now, the, what we'd be hearing about is the rights of the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, the discrimination that they've suffered, which is real, and that's why we have to go and defend them. And of course, Putin doesn't care about the ordinary people in uh, the Donbass or Crimea, um, and he's obviously picked up the language of peacekeepers from precisely US imperialism, has used that language previously in the Middle East. But on the other side, what we're hearing is that this is the defense of a small nation, like the, the language that would have been used around Belgium in terms of mobilizing for war in World War I. What we don't hear that just as Putin is trying to expand westwards and, and reassert Russia's power on the world stage, 
Is the fact that NATO has expanded 800 kilometres eastwards since the collapse of the Berlin Wall? Uh, we don't hear about the massive military exercises by NATO on a yearly basis on Russia's borders. 30,000 troops involved in so-called Defender Europe last year. You don't hear about the missile bases in Romania and Poland. You don't hear about the NATO battle groups in four different countries on Russia's borders. So NATO, US imperialism, also has an agenda here, which is about encircling uh, Russia. And I think the attitude of ordinary people is, is not to have, we're not in favour of either of these camps, uh, and instead we need to build an anti-war movement to say we have de-escalation and no to war, hands off Russia, troops out of the Ukraine, Russian troops out of the Ukraine, but also okay. NATO troops out of Eastern Europe. Neil Risham, the argument may, being made there is that no one has clean hands in this. No, and it's a completely false argument. And what Paul fails to mention is these were sovereign, independent Eastern European states who used to be under the boot, uh, the boot, the jackboot of Soviet imperialism have independently sought over years to join NATO, to join the European Union. We're not neutral in this. It's Ukraine today. It could be the Baltic states next. They're members of the European Union. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They are Ireland's allies. And what we're seeing is straight up Russian imperialism trying to reconquer the old Soviet sphere of influence. And what we're seeing in response is not some sort of NATO expansion. Independent countries seeking to join NATO to protect themselves from an aggressor to the east is totally different to what Paul is describing. Do you think that's potentially inflammatory though? Well if I was living in Poland or Ukraine or Estonia I'd be looking for support. When I'm in Estonia and my social welfare system has been hacked by Russian operatives and shut down for three whole days, I'm looking for allies, I'm looking for protection from Western partners. There's a reason these countries wanted to join the European Union, there's a reason why so many want to join NATO yeah, are uh, in Joining NATO. the European Union is one thing, joining NATO quite another. From you know Ukraine's point of view and on, on in all of this, how inflammatory would that be to have that NATO in Ukraine right next to Russia it's when there are those to take tensions it's, it's already not, existing? If a country is a member of NATO, it's not NATO moving in there, it's a country choosing to join an organisation for a reason of self-defence and understandable concern. It's not some sort of imperialist act coming out of Washington. It's like-minded countries working together, countries that feel threatened and clearly of the events of the last weeks, to be honest, the events since 2014 show that Ukraine is under threat. What does any of that do to de-escalate the situation potentially here, though, Donica, when we're, when we're talking about two sides and what Paul is saying about this, you know, that the, the US-led, you know, the, the NATO sense of, of wanting to, you know, side here with the Ukrainians and with these former um, Russian bloc countries, like, all of that can't help with this situation in terms of de-escalation and dialing, dialing it all down. Yeah, but the dialing up, if you take the last few months, has been done unilaterally by Russia by moving those hundreds of thousands of troops to the border of Ukraine. Ukraine has been asking NATO for, for, to join uh, since 2008, and NATO hasn't acceded to that request. NATO isn't going around looking for new <coughs> members. As, as Neil pointed out, you know, NATO was petition, it was, you know, there was a queue of, of states which were trying to escape a very abusive cycle of history, and Ukraine is just the latest in these. 14 of the 30 members of NATO have joined uh, since the end of the Cold War, and most of those are EU member states. I mean, we often kind of focus on the United States as if that's NATO. It's also Norway, it's Denmark, it's Estonia, it's Latvia, it's small states which haven't been abusing their neighbours, but have been abused and are looking for security, And which, which is, I think, everybody's right to have. We have the luxury of being an island off the Atlantic coast and not being of interest to any major power. But, you know, these countries don't, and they have to make different choices which we don't have to make.
Uh, interesting, of course, that Putin hardly mentioned NATO in that speech that he, he gave last night um, <clears throat> and when he, in which he drummed up sort of Russian imperialism and all of that. Now, on these sanctions that have been announced, the big question, will they work? You know, it's step one from a European point of view. Um, will, will they feel the impact of any the, of these sanctions? And is it just natural that it's going to go to the next step? And should arguably Europe and the US be preemptive in announcing fresh sanctions here? That's what Ukraine has asked for. They've looked for preemptive sanctions. They've said that they might have had a chance of deterring this kind of aggression had they been initiated before. The Kremlin is quite confident that it can absorb the sanctions. Putin and Medvedev and his Security Council yesterday were saying they've been planning these kinds of things uh, for quite a long time. They have a lot of experience in absorbing sanctions. They have alternatives. They have funds. Uh, so they're certainly confident they can ride this out. Yeah, uh, let's have a look at a tweet there from Dmitry Medvedev. On, uh, he's on Russia's Security Council, of course, which held that extraordinary meeting yesterday, um, saying today, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has issued an order to halt the process of certifying the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. We welcome uh, to the brave new world where Europeans are very likely to soon be paying €2,000 for 1,000 cubic metres of natural gas. All of this, of course, Paul, you know, taunting Europe's precarious situation on energy. So th this is really going to be at the nub of it. If there's more sanctions to come, our reliance on, on Russian gas and Russian energy supplies um, for us here in Ireland and in other countries and how that will play into more sanctions or if there'll be any more. Yeah, I mean... Look, obviously, I, I won't cry any tears for the Russian oligarchs and Putin's friends and, you know, the coterie in the top of being impacted by, by sanctions. Um, I would be concerned about this talk about an expanded range of, of sanctions. I mean, you look, before the two wars in Iraq, there were sanctions on Iraq that had horrendous impacts on the ordinary people. And any sanctions that would impact on ordinary people in Russia, I think, would be wrong. It's not ordinary people in Russia who are responsible for the actions of Putin. They shouldn't be held uh, responsible for it. I mean, just on, on the question well, of... What do you do? Like, what yeah. do you do in this scenario? Because sanctions are the diplomatic way, I suppose, of addressing a problem here. If you're not going to have military boots on the ground, this is, this is the... Sanctions but, are the step that you take. But right? like I said, I, I, I don't have a side in a clash between US-led NATO forces, and let's be real about what NATO is, and Russian imperialism. I'm opposed to both of them. Um, so I'm not in favour of one side winning or the other in that. I'm in favour of the right of, of people of Ukraine. What if it was Ukraine? Lithuania? They could be next. We so, have a side there. They're in the EU with us. No, I'm, I'm, but this, this isn't about the right of small nations. But, you, but you can go, already you can go back, actions against Estonia. You can Estonia go back to 1914. No, you can go back to 1914. Was Estonia? World War I about the rights of, no. of Belgium? Let's was, leave was it? Let's leave World no, War about it. Is, but Paul, what about Estonia and Lithuania who have already been attacked and have already been threatened by the Russian government who said they're defending the Russian majority? What happens when it's Lithuania sure. and Estonia? Do you take a side and say, no, that's US-led imperialism? Do you recognise no, they are fellow members of the European Union? The point is we're, we're opposed to these actions, let's be clear, of Putin. We're in solidarity with the anti-war movement in Russia, which is developing, which is trying to get on the streets, obviously facing huge repression and so on. But to say that ordinary people's interest here is to have a de-escalation, to have no war, and that means building a global movement, including in the US, including in Russia, including in Ireland, to say no to war. And I would just pose the point, and it isn't to justify Putin's actions at all, but imagine if Mexico joined the CSTO, the, the Russian equivalent of, of NATO, and was having 30,000 people doing military exercise on Mexico's borders with the US, and was installing missiles. Do you think the US... 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This would say, oh, it's a sovereign country, it's the right to do it. No. And the issue is that the US considers the whole world okay, to be their background. That Neil, US I mean, that's We're the against argument. all of them. That's no. the argument that's been made by Paul and others about what if it was flipped, what it was happening on the other side. Paul's making a hypothetical argument that isn't in the here and now. In the here and now, we have a situation where effectively Ukraine was invaded by Russia in 2014. We have 150,000 Russian troops on the border of a European country. We have other EU countries that have been threatened and that have been attacked consistently by Russia. We have a situation now where the EU has announced some sanctions. I welcome them, particularly the cancellation of Nord Stream 2. US has announced sanctions today. The UK, to be honest, have announced partial sanctions and could go a lot further. And where I agree with Paul is rather than targeting the ordinary people of Russia, it's looking at that coterie around uh, Vladimir Putin. It's looking at the oligarchs, many of whom are based in London, who are based in European capitals, who've moved their finances to European capitals. They need to be squeezed out quickly because all the efforts that Dunica mentioned in terms of preparing for sanctions that go both ways, it's targeting that cabal. And that's why particularly the 351 members of the Duma having accounts seized, assets seized, travel bans is a really good start. All right. Um, like where to from here is the question, Donica. Like we see how diplomatic efforts are going down so far um, between Europe and, and Vladimir Putin. Um, what's, what's the next step if these sanctions don't work and we do see um, further entry into uh, Ukrainian territory? If we do that, what the rest of the world has made clear is that Ukraine is on its own. And I, I, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable when we focus too much about Moscow and, and, and the United States. This is about Ukraine ultimately and the 40 million plus people who live there. And, you know, they're always seeing, you know, the, the, the summitry of Biden and Putin. They're not at the table, but their destinies are being decided. And Ukrainians have changed over the years. They, ha they have not chosen NATO as a matter of first choice. They've chosen it as a matter of desperation uh, because of the adversary that they've had. And in this week where we've seen additional territories taken and now the risk of more territories being, being gobbled up by their neighbour. And they know that nobody's going to help them. I mean, as you know, Germany uh, wouldn't even send weapons for them to defend themselves, not to mention send any troops to help. And it's even considered in some, I've seen articles, you know, by, by different people saying that it's provocative that, that Ukraine is looking for help. And here, that, that's just blaming the victim. Ukraine is the victim here. 
That has to be understood without equivocation, without whataboutery. And then we have to collectively, as a nation and as the European Union, understand how we can help Ukraine. On sanctions in terms of how they could impact us here, you know, interesting point about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is supplying so much energy supplies to Germany. But how could further measures, I suppose, impact people in Ireland, that we will see that impact beyond, you know, beyond Russia and beyond uh, um, countries like, like Germany and elsewhere? Our trade with Russia is relatively limited. Um, so it, it, I don't think, and I'm, it's not my area of expertise, I don't think we would be hugely impacted econo economically. The sanctions that were imposed in 2014 did have some impact on Irish exports to Russia. That's true, but it's something, as I said, we had a relatively small trade with Russia. So I don't, I don't think that's the focus. And ultimately, I think this has been a problem as well with European Union countries from the start. They're saying, how can sanctions hurt us? Um, they're looking at the pain that it will deliver to them. And that's why there's been such a weak appetite in the European Union. That's why Germany, for example, was vacillating for so long. That pipeline should never have been built. That pipeline was being built after the annexation of Crimea. It was a disgrace. Uh, it, the right thing has been done belatedly. But again, only after further aggression. We have to ask ourselves, what was the European Union doing since 2014 with Crimea already annexed? Uh, you know, with Ukraine already occupied. And, and now Vladimir Putin, rather than modifying his behaviour because of sanctions, he's back again asking for more. All right, there we'll have to leave that. That's all we have time for on that. My thanks to Dunica. Neil and Paul will be staying with me because coming up after the break, uh, Monday sees the end of almost all COVID restrictions. Too soon or too long coming? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back. Cabinet has agreed to end almost all restrictions next Monday, marking a significant step in the country's exit from the COVID-19 pandemic. It means that mask wearing will no longer be required on public transport by law in retail environments or in schools. Masks will still be required in healthcare settings. In studio to discuss this significant step in Ireland's uh, route out of the pandemic is Moira Thrasini Kelly, sports broadcaster and performance psychologist. Neil Richmond, TD for Finnegale, and Paul Murphy, TD for People Before Profit, are still here with me. But first, Virgin Media News reporters asked the public what they thought of the decision to end the mask mandate. I'm delighted because um, I think particularly for children in classrooms, it's been a bit of a pain. So I'm thrilled. A concern about my son, so I'm not happy for that. Even you can see my son, we come into the city centre and we wear masks, so I'm not happy. No, I think the masks should be still worn on shops and still going into buses. Glad to be uh, not to have to wear a mask anymore, but the other side, I think we have to still be careful. I'm not too fond of getting rid of them because like, they're kind of like my safety net. They're like my safety net. Uh, quite a few people will feel that way, I think, Maura Trassi. Um, what are your thoughts as someone who sort of worked on the front line during this pandemic about us um, you know, removing almost all COVID restrictions and the masks being the big one come next Monday? 
I think for those of us who are anxious, and thankfully I have the luxury of not having to be anxious, I've been triple vaccinated, I've caught COVID, and I, as far as I know, have a very healthy immune system. That's not the case for everyone else. But I think for those of us who are worried, we have to remember that just because this is a recommendation, you know, it's still recommended that you still wear your mask if you want to, and obviously places where it's busy, indoors, you know, nobody's saying don't wear your mask. What they're saying is the legal obligation is going to be gone. So that is good. But I think we also have to remember that, to be fair, and especially we'll compare ourselves to our neighbours on either side, in, say over in the UK and the US, we've done pretty well. And Netflix, in general, have guided us very well. And those of us who were screaming you know, a lot of the time, will you please listen to the public health advice that is coming from this team? They are now saying this, so while some of us might be nervous, I think we have to remember Tony Holohan and co were quite risk averse. And if they're saying it's okay, nervously we have to accept it, I think. Okay, on that point, um, Tony says it's okay, so it's okay, Paul Murphy. I, I think there are rushing things in terms of the, the masks. Um, the government didn't listen to the trade unions representing the workers who have no choice but to go to work in various environments where now people, some people, of course they can won't still, be masked. They can wear masks. Yeah, but, but the mask, the point about the mask is we're protecting each other. It isn't just that the mask protects yourself. Obviously, in particular, if you wear a high quality mask, which I'd recommend people to do, and the government should send them out to people, N95, FFP2, then you're giving yourself a lot of protection. But the primary use of like the more basic face coverings is to protect others. So those workers have, have no choice but to go into work in scenarios where others. Also vulnerable people. There are many vulnerable people now who feel they're being somewhat excluded from public transport, public spaces, etc., because they're at risk. And if other people around them on the Lewis or the bus or whatever, more and more people aren't wearing masks, that's a bigger risk for them. So I don't think it would have been much to ask people, and I would still, of course, but ask people. The strong people government guidance to. is to continue to wear masks on public transport settings, that even though it's not mandated by law, there will be advice that, you know, should you go on a bus or a train or a Lewis or whatever, put a mask on. Yes, but, but unfortunately, I think the signal that is giving to people is a bit like the Tory government in Britain, that the pandemic is over and just things will slide. And the, the truth is, while we would all like the pandemic to be over, it's, it's not over. I mean, over 500 people have already died this year from COVID. At this stage, in terms of child hospitalizations, the numbers are incredible. But 40% of all children who have been hospitalized because of COVID in the course of the entire pandemic have been hospitalized since the 1st of January. It's absolutely exploding in terms of schools. And the government has done nothing still on the question of ventilation and all filtration. Right. Okay, uh, Neil Richmond, just on that issue around the number, like we still have thousands of COVID cases today. I mean, we, we have many more that the HSE won't be informed about because it's up to people who got a positive answer to let the HSE know. And then there's the PCR testing as well. Um, but with all of that, you know, the science behind it, is the science there? The public health officials have certainly made that move, but people like, you know, representing vulnerable groups will say, well, where, where is the science? And is it the right time scientifically to make these moves now? Well, this is why we put the faith in effort. And these are the scientists. They're not trade unions advocating on behalf of workers. They're, they're think considering the entire public health of society as a whole. This moment was going to come. The government always um, outlined that 28th of February is when we would look at it. This is when it will kick into place. I take issue of Paul's comparison with the Tory government in the UK. It's, it's nothing like that at all. You know, you're not going to have a bonfire of masks like you had last summer in the UK. People will still be encouraged to wear them in congested areas, but they won't be forced. And certainly over the last 18 months, I've found it very difficult as a government member constantly voting to force people to do stuff necessarily. We've had to do it, but we now move into the place of advice and the advice is backed by the public health teams and 
But most importantly, yes, we do have to sympathy and concern with those who are hesitant, those who are reluctant. But there are many more people who are thinking about their kids in classrooms who want to see them being able to learn without masks, who want to move back towards an element of normality, back to hugging relatives without that level of guilt. Can, can I just, just the whole kids in schools and the masks thing, that's something I feel very strongly about. Like for me, I'm okay going around not wearing a mask in a pub or whatever, because like I said, I've had the benefit of three vaccines. The children haven't, and I feel the government possibly haven't done enough to encourage parents to ensure children are vaccinated. The messaging is, and I understand why, it's softly, softly, it's mm. your choice. But I feel that could be a bit more robust. And I think a lot of parents watching tonight would feel a lot more comfortable if children weren't wearing masks, if there was more vaccines, if they were more spaced out, if the, if the schools were ventilated. We've got so many children packed into overpacked classrooms. And this is what's worrying parents. I genuinely think, because this is what I see when I talk to parents, I'd be involved in a lot of children's sports as well. I'd see them in hospitals. And their big worry is that, you know, all these mitigations that weren't that expensive. And then schools were closed for so long. And then if a child still catches it, they're out for days and weeks. It's still causing damage. And it's those who are working or trying to work and get the kids to school and get out to the day job that they're being forced back into the office now. It's not so much, I don't think the fear anymore is the fear of death and dying for the vast majority, thank the Lord. And that's thanks to science and everything. But it's the fear of just trying to be normal. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure throwing away masks but in fairness, I don't think they will be thrown away. No. I do think the vast majority of us will keep wearing them. And certainly I spent a yeah. lot of time in Southeast Asia before the pandemic, where pandemic is normal. You have yeah. a cold and you have a cough, and I certainly won't be getting rid of mine. Yeah. I'll be using them for those sort of reasons. But I think with the schools, it is a delicate. And I'd agree with you in terms of the encouragement for vaccination, encouraging parents who, it's different when you're making that decision for yourself, making that decision for your child is, is one that people are putting a bit of thought into. Yeah. But we do but, have to have that availability and I would agree fundamentally with but that. But I was in a school on, on Monday speaking with sixth class and it wasn't just all the pupils who were looking forward to getting back to an element of normality. They've had two years cooped up. It was also the teachers, it was the SNAs, it was the parents, it was the school administrators. They feel confident, they feel comfortable. Yeah, but there's and also if it's being backed by the public health advice. There's also a decision advice, as well, like contact tracing is going to go and mass testing is going to go. So you won't be eligible for PCRs. Um, I mean, what the rule book essentially is being thrown away here, not that that's necessarily a, a bad thing, but it's a huge, it's a huge it's change. It's not being thrown away, Claire, and I think it's being reduced. It's being reflective in where we're at in the pandemic, both from a public health point of view, but plus from an administrative point of view. We're simply not where well, we were people know what six to, do, to eight months is, ago. Is the well, this is the, the key challenge to make sure that when these measures are relaxed next week, that there's a full, the public information campaign won't go. As all of us would agree, the pandemic isn't over, but it's making sure that we move to a, well, a different phase. Well, but we've always do, said we do would. Do you think there's confusion there? Is, there? is there a clear strategy on where to from here now? Well, you see, the, the government is saying, fair enough, like we're going to live with COVID, but then they're not doing what is necessary to enable us to live with COVID as safely as is possible, to minimise the number of deaths. And, and people, you know, people live or die based on the decisions that are made about this. And so I, I go back to the crucial point about, which we've been banging on for a very long time now, it's an airborne virus, and therefore ventilation and filtration is absolutely key. It's the 1st of December now, almost three months ago, that our bill for clean air, to guarantee workers clean air in workplaces, which would include, therefore, schools, um, passed second stage, right, which means it passes in principle. The minister in response on that day, he said, oh, we agree with you. We're not just going to kick it off and pass, pass it. We'll, I'm going to give you a call this afternoon 
to make sure we see what best way to do it. We'll bring it in by regulation or whatever. I never got a call from him. Uh, a week and a half later, I was on your show with him here, uh, Damien English. He said, oh, no, don't worry. We're, we're going to do it. Nothing. We've been writing to them. There, okay. There's no progress. They're abandoning doing the stuff that is actually necessary. We need HEPA filters. We still need HEPA filters in all classes. Like, we still need that. People think, oh, that's just it, gone. That's in the past. But yeah. that's precisely about living with COVID. We need proper ventilation in workplaces. We need CO2 monitors everywhere. Neil, like, would why you, isn't that would stuff you, happening? Would you agree with that? And actually, you know, about a strategy and about, like, where we're going now. I mean, Micheál Martin did promise us that, but we haven't got word on that yet. Is that coming down the line? Well, there is. And I think, actually, throughout, no, it's quite clear, because throughout the government and we saw it in the press uh, conference last week the government have outlined where they're moving towards we signalled the 28th of February as oh, yeah, when no, we know about the 28th but medium long term strategy of dealing with COVID yeah and dealing with COVID we've worked through quite clear phases how we've approached this it's been very cautious particularly over the last calendar year in terms of moving out but it is moving into a situation when no restrictions are there I disagree with Paul HEPA filters have been made available to schools schools around the country are installing them where they need them and the funding is being made available um, you know, on this, as somebody who's working in the health service um, and nearly, nearly <laughs> almost there, but you know, you have yeah. good experience of it over the last couple of years as, as, it, as it deals with this pandemic. Um, what, what do you think is needed now as we kind of emerge from this situation? I think what would be really good is that the people who are nervous, and they have very good reason to be nervous. Uh, if I had my way, if I was in charge of purse strings, what I would be doing is I would be supplying those people with the high quality masks that they need. They shouldn't have to pay for them out of their own pocket. It is not their fault. They're vulnerable. They are sick. And, you know, that should be something, for example, on the medical card. For example, that would be definitely one thing I would do. I would, I'm kind of falling in between two stools between the two gentlemen here because I genuinely, you know, we have to accept it. COVID-19 is not the big public health threat that it was but unfortunately we have a health service that is creaking at the seams and under massive pressure we don't have enough staff I see doctors and nurses exhausted every day healthcare workers everyone they haven't had a break they need time off but who's going to look after who's going to do the work while they're gone we have people who have waited two three four five years for procedures that haven't happened they're now arriving in sick and it's not elective anymore so there's this big pressure cooker everywhere so I do think what would help is that people's concerns were listened to but not just listened to acted upon put the HEPA filters into the classrooms Give the people who feel the need, they want the masks, you know, if you're vulnerable, give them the budget for it. It's very simple, but it will help. And it's, it's, it's pound wise. Mm -hmm. Instead of being penny wise and, you know, pound foolish, we should look at it the other way around. That's what I would do. All right. OK, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thanks to my panel uh, and to Paul. Moira Trass and Neil will be staying with me coming up after the break. How serious a problem is cocaine in the GAA? Welcome back at its Congress this week. The GAA are set to discuss the issue of cocaine use among players following a leash club's call for action to be taken to stamp out drug taking in the sport, which then came to national attention when it was brought up in the Shannad. In studio, we still have Moira Thrasinichiali, sports broadcaster and performance psychologist, and Neil Richmond, TD for Fine Gael. Um, on this story, Moira Thrasa, um, when we speak about the cocaine problem, would it be safe to say that this is well and truly a problem that we are seeing in every parish and therefore in every GAA club at every, you know, not in the sports ground, but among players 
and you know rising right up to intercounty level. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. I mean, I would hate for anyone to think that this is a GAA specific problem. It isn't, but actually the GAA are in a great position because out of all organisations on the island of Ireland, they have a prong nearly in every parish, small town, village, whatever city in the country. So they're in a great position to actually spearhead maybe some kind of way to educate people about the damage that cocaine can do to you. And it is on the rise. If you ask any GP, ask any doctor, they will tell you they are seeing more and more people are coming into their offices or their surgeries with the side effects of cocaine use. And that is the thing. It is dangerous. So what's the, the link with the GA and the link with sport in all of this? I think the link with the GA is the fact that perhaps people or administrators are perhaps they're seeing the side effects as well. And they're seeing, you know, and they're finding out and they're hearing stories about young people in sport, male and female, getting involved in, and it is cocaine that, that's shooting up rapidly for whatever reason and we know why one it's, it's much more available even than when I was a teenager for example and um, and you know I think we need to acknowledge why people possibly are taking it is it because they're bored is it mental health issues for some people it is but also you know let's face it for some people cocaine is, a, is an attractive prospect when you're looking to do go into some mind-altering space here because it's freely available it is cheap you don't gain weight in it in fact it's an it's, it's an appetite suppressant and you don't get hung over it means you can train the next day and you're not having the carb craving munchies that we'd have after we went on a night out on the Raz. so that's what you're up against and i think when you're going to acknowledge a problem you need to understand why and then you need to educate people because while people might say well you can do all this with it but you can also die and people have died immediately after taking a teeny tiny amount and sometimes people with huge tolerance and that's the huge danger with it. It is completely unregulated and it is completely dangerous. Fair enough to say, Neil, this is something that's probably not unique to GAA. I mean, if we're seeing a proliferation of cocaine use among young people, you know, right up and down the country, they're not just playing GAA. It's probably across all sports, really, this problem and how to how to challenge this problem face on. Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm involved in sport. I'm involved in lots of sports, rugby, um, hockey, cricket, and it's there. It's prevalent. I can see it. Um, after matches, people are talking about it openly. They have a complete ignorance of the impact of cocaine. People who are younger than me. And when you're saying people are talking about it openly, like in what way? Like what? what, what well, I've overheard conversations with people saying like, well, we need to get a bag for tonight or where are we going afterwards? Let's go to someone's house before or after. And it was really interesting the way he said, it's an appetite suppressant. If you're spending a couple of hundred quid going to a gym to get a six pack, uh, like a lot of young men are, you're not necessarily going to want to have 10 pints of lager. And if there's an alternative that you don't think has any downsides. And why I think the GA in particular has such an important role is they've also had great success in terms of concerns about alcohol addiction, in terms of gambling addiction. A young, a very exposed demographic, which is predominantly young men as well as women, but really young men is where we're seeing the huge growth levels. When I was 22, cocaine wasn't available as much as it is now 16 years later. And it's something that is a very real issue that there's no one, one easy solution to it. There's no one thing the government can do. Is more drug testing the answer here? I think that could be part of it, but I think education is far more important. It's getting into clubs, it's getting into not just inter-county teams, it's getting into the, the junior B team, the minor team, the underage teams across all sports uh, and explaining what are the real dangers here, what are you exposing yourself to from a, a criminality point of view, from a financial risk, the risk of addiction and how, to be honest, it affects your performance as an athlete as well. Moira Trasso, do you think there's a reluctance around that? There's a reluctance to deal with this issue? 
I'm not sure there's a reluctance. There definitely probably is an ignorance because there are people possibly in a certain demographic who just haven't been exposed to these kind of drugs. They don't understand them. And therefore, sometimes when you don't understand something, it's very easy to not see it. And maybe until you're kind of in the throes maybe of these groups of young people, then you realise and you know actually, oh, this is happening. It, in general, people tend to not know until they hear somebody's been arrested by a Gorda or something like that, or they hear of somebody getting very sick. But it's everywhere and we have to acknowledge this. It is in every town, village in Ireland, in the most rural spot that you can think of, you can access cocaine now. And that has to be addressed. And I don't think, you know, sanctions are the answer. It's definitely education. I think there's lots of people who, if they knew what the dangers, they wouldn't be taking. Is there an element as well? You know, the GAA have said, while any player may be selected for testing, there is particular focus <coughs> on testing with regard to inter-county players. Um, and we have a responsibility to ensure the players are aware of the Irish anti-doping rules that are in place. Now, we are hearing anecdotally that these, you know, when it comes to testing, that teams will get a couple of weeks' notice that they will be tested post-match. I mean, is that I'm enough sure of a deterrent? I'm not sure that's actually true. I've been involved in inter-county teams and the anti-doping will show up without, without, any, without any warning or anything like that. But to be honest, I would be less worried about the inter-county players because they are dope-tested. They are like finely oiled machines. They're thoroughbred racehorses. I'm more thinking of... Average Joseph, people like me who are going out, you know, went back in the day when I was playing football. It's the club player and those going to gyms. I think they're the ones who possibly we need to be a bit more worried about. And do you think they feel that it actually enhances their game? I'm not sure they feel like it enhances their game, but don't forget, a lot of the clubs are still ensconced in the culture where the coach says, if I catch you out drinking, there's a drinking ban on, you're going to be playing, you're going to be thrown off the team. You know, there's all that kind of thing going on in the background. I can't be seen drinking, can't be seen out. So this is an alternative. All oh, right, OK, and we have to obviously look at, at state level as well, how to impart that message through sports bodies. But that is it from us. There's plenty more to be discussed on that topic. My thanks to Kieran, uh, my thanks to Moira Truss, I should say, Neil and all of our guests who are on the show tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.